Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. And welcome to Retirementals. I am Abraham Oksanya, and it's great to have you all here with us today. I am really excited about our guest today. Owen Walker is the European Banking Correspondent at the FT and the author of Built on a Lie, The Rise and Fall of Neil Woodford and the Faith of Middle England's Money. Owen, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, really looking forward to this. Um, just for the purpose of our audience who may not know who you are, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and um, you know your journey into uh, financial services journalism? Sure. Um, so, as, as you mentioned, I, I cover European banks at the FT. Um, I've been at the FT group which is the newspaper and and, um, collection of sort of trade publications for um, about 14 years now Um, I joined about a a month before the financial crisis though don't hold that against me (laughs) nothing to do with that Um, but um, yeah I I, the way I got into it was I I, you know I did an English degree didn't know what I wanted to do did a journalism postgraduate degree um, and then kind of assumed I would take the, the, the standard route of working for a you know local paper and then regional paper and then maybe a national at the end of uh, that. Um, and but then I, I sort of saw an advert to, to I'm from London to, to move back to London, work at one of the FT's pension publications. Um, and uh, I knew absolutely nothing about pensions or business journalism or anything along those lines. Um, a friend of mine's father was a financial advisor and he gave me a very short crash course in the pensions issue. And this is kind of 2017. And um, I don't know, you know, how, how uh, good your memory is of that time. But the, the big topic at the time was this thing called A-Day, tax simplification of pensions. Right. Uh, and I, I kind of got a very, very basic knowledge of, of what happened and the changes. Uh, and I just mentioned a few buzzwords in the interview, and I think they were they were kind of blown <laughs> away. <laughs> uh, luckily, they didn't probe too much deeper because that was basically the sum of my knowledge at the time. Um, got the job uh, writing about pensions and um, did that for a few years. Worked on some other publications at the FT, including uh, moving to New York for a few years, writing about fund management and corporate governance. Uh, and then I moved back to the UK about eight years or so ago and been working for the paper and up until last year, I was writing about uh, asset management and the investment industry. And then, uh, you know, now I cover European banks. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so let's, let's dive into your book. So first of all, congrats on the, on the book. Um, I, I don't know if this is your first one, but, uh, you know, I know it takes a whole lot of work <laughs> putting a book together. I must admit, when I first saw the title of the book, this was before it was published, you know, I was kind of, uh, frankly, dismissive because I said to myself, you know, the old New Woodford, you know, scandal happened right in front of our eyes. What am I really going to learn, um, you know, by reading a book about it? And, you know, I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised by the depth of, um, you know, the research and the journey that you went into. So I want to pick out a couple of things in the book. But before I do that, do you want to tell our audience a little bit about, um, you know, the events that led to, to, to your book? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks very much for very kind comments on the book. Um, yeah, so as I said, up to last year, I was covering asset management, and and clearly, you know, as your listeners will, will know very well, um, you know, the biggest name in British fund management uh, is still arguably, and and certainly was for a long time, Neil Woodford. So he was certainly a character uh, and an individual, and his business was was one that we had followed closely. And as you said, it happened. Uh, you know, certainly as far as, you know, your listeners are concerned, this is a topic they knew very well. It was uh, the, the guy who uh, became, you know, the best known, uh, best followed 
fund manager of his generation in the UK, you know, compared to Warren Buffett, compared to, you know, the man who can't stop making money was, was one thing he was known as the, the Oracle of Oxford. You know, this was a guy who was feted, who, you know, politicians were falling over backwards to, you know, praise him. He was uh, revered as this kind of doyon of, of, of corporate governance at one point. You know, he was a, a, a huge character in British business. He could pick up the phone to CEOs of FTSE 100 companies and, and basically get them to, to change course on major mm. deal transactions, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and along the line, he picked up a huge following of financial advisors and you know hundreds of thousands of ordinary savers, people putting their pensions, their life savings into his funds. And then um, this all came in the did all that uh, whilst working for um, Invesco Perpetual in, in Henley, went on his own about five years ago, decided to set his own business uh, up. Uh, and then um, from about 2017 onwards to two years ago to, to spring 2019, uh, had this incredible downward journey where um, he, uh, he had terrible performance. A lot of the, the companies he invested in performed very poorly at the same time investors started pulling money out what he'd done over that period since setting up is he started investing not just in the blue chip companies he was famed for but actually a lot of small unlisted or or, or, or very weakly traded um companies um and then so suddenly he was kind of caught in this liquidity trap where uh the, the money the the companies he could sell were the big listed ones the ones he was left with the smaller ones that became a larger portion of his uh, portfolio that suffered as a result from a performance perspective people started taking more money out and it, that that sort of rump of unlisted and, and um, smaller listed companies got bigger and bigger and, and in the end he didn't have enough money back to pay back his, his investors and when they started asking for it back in uh, in droves in the run-up to um, to May 2019 then that's when his his uh, business ultimately uh, couldn't cope the fund was suspended more than 300,000 people are still waiting to get all of their money back from that you know we we toyed two years on heard from the regulator you know and 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 um and uh, the administrator that's not going to happen until at least next year at the earliest so this is still a very live topic for a lot of people causing a lot of financial pain so that is the that is the that is the central piece of of the story i covered it at the time um you know me and a colleague we did lots of reports lots of you know, lots of exclusives we we, we uh, spoke to a lot of people at the time uh people very close to the situation uh we won you know some some british journalism awards on the back of it uh and then this book is kind of looking at that story uh with more information more of the kind of the inside stuff that was going on some of the the details of which had previously been reported certainly around the, the regulator's role in terms of the what was going on some of the decisions the key decisions that were made the, the, the problems at those points what happened um but also within the context of the wider uh investing and uh a, a advisory market um you know which is uh, you know there are you know, 4.5 million Brits use financial advisors or wealth managers and about two thirds of British households uh, use, or three quarters in fact, use the fund management industry whether they know it or not. Um, it says it has a huge impact on people's lives. And I don't think there is that much knowledge of, of what happens within you know, when they hand over their savings to this industry, what happens next? And that was very much what the book wanted to to look at as well. So that's kind of the, what the built-in lies in a nutshell. And, and your your point on the uh, the title that comes from uh, Mark Carney, then the, the Governor Bank of England in Treasury Select Committee hearings was um, asked what he thought about the this fund structure where, you know, you could be offering you know, day dealing, offering people their money back every day, but actually invested in things which you wouldn't be able to shift for, you know, months or, or years in some cases. And he said the whole premise was built on a lie. And so that's where the, the, the name of the book comes from. Yeah, so so the fascinating stuff. And, and I want to dig into, into all of this. One of the things that got me hooked on your book was that you went back to the story of the boy you know, yeah. that was Neil Woodford. He, the, the, you know, the parents and the household that, that he grew up in, um, you know, his, his secondary school days, you know, he was a keen sportsman, 
and then you know went to university and then of course his early days in the in the fund management industry with eagles now talk a little bit to our audience about that boy that became known as um, neil woodford yeah i mean i, I suppose the, the the image that people have of, of neil woodford now you know he, he's been described as kind of like a bouncer you know he he's uh you know bald head guy very muscly he's a, he's a very keen sportsman played um you know a good level of rugby well into his um certainly into his 30s still is very active sportsman now so and he has has very sort of the physique of uh you know a big big kind of guy um you know the woodford of of his school age is a, a guy with curly blonde hair uh <laughs> who was uh you know really smart smart kid um bit cheeky you know i spoke to some of his teachers and people he knew cheeky but you know very sociable everyone kind of got on well with him very keen sportsman as you say um played for the rugby team did javelin at uh, at county level um and that's really where you see the, the competitive nature of woodford you know he's he was always a sportsman you know in latter life he, he's got into horse eventing uh mm. you know he, he's very keen is is that competition that drive uh and and that was very much seen through his investing career you know you can really plot that character trait in him all the way through which certainly helped him on the way up um there was also, I suppose, a kind of a, a hint of, um, you know, arrogance, natural arrogance, which certainly developed uh, over time. But, uh, you know, he's, he was very confident. He sailed through, you know, his 11 pluses, got into the grammar school, uh, was, a, you know, a, a, a head boy there. You know, very things came easy to him. He, he was he was very, um, very smart guy. And I think that, again, that kind of natural self-confidence for him through his career developed later i think into more kind of arrogance and, and hubris as, as uh, he, he rose to the top in the fund management industry um but i think it's quite interesting if, if you look at his career then he, he he didn't see himself as a fund manager as a kid he you know he, he pretty much fell into the career he saw himself as a uh, a pilot an rf pilot his father had had uh, served in the Second World War, you know, he'd heard the old war stories, and I think he wanted to pursue that career himself. He was very actively involved in in the lo local youth um, RAF group, and um, but he failed the, the entrance uh, qualifications to, to become a, a pilot's exam, uh, and uh, and then he, so he, you know pursued university, pursued did kind of ended university, didn't really know what to do. His brothers work in the city, he stepped on his floor for a bit got a job as a kind of a, a you know junior guy at, uh, at actually a, a, a pension provider and kind of worked his way up that way into becoming the fund manager we we know he became so it's, it's, it's quite interesting his route into the city and he you know his time in the city of London which was only a few years was a fascinating time you know it was during big bang you know you had explosion of of, of uh, change in the city you know, had lots of cultural changes you know some of the early offices he worked in people were freely smoking at their desks it's very different <laughs> to now um uh, you know there's very there's very different culture uh, but i think he didn't really get on with that culture and you know he, he found his uh, home in henley um, just outside uh, in, in oxfordshire or buckinghamshire later on uh, at Vesco um, petrol now a word from our sponsor i am super delighted that Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost model portfolio service has now exceeded half a billion pounds in asset under management. And that's in just 16 months since we launched the discretionary service. I remember launching in March of 2020 and then the world went completely crazy with the pandemic and and we've been amazed by the incredible support that we've received from financial planners who agree with us that the best way to invest their clients money is through low-cost globally diversified evidence-based um, model portfolio service that is efficient and that is powered by by technology and so really really excited about um, you know what we've accomplished as a team over the last um, over the last few months of course this is a space with 
um, an enormous potential. If you think that today there is about 600 billion of assets on advisor platforms, and if that continues to grow at the 15% year on year, which it has over the last couple of years, then we expect assets on advisor platforms to exceed one trillion pounds in, in five years time. And you know, as of today, half of the assets on advisor platforms is managed in advisory portfolios, which are incredibly time consuming and inefficient and with, with a lot of rooms for, for, for error. So, so we've seen advisors shift towards um, discretionary model portfolio service um, over the last uh, couple of years. But discretionary MPS themselves only account for less than 20% of assets on advisor platform. And I believe that one of the problems here is that, you know, these discretionary MPS are run by traditional DFMs who themselves lack technology to scale efficiently. And they, they themselves sit on, um, you know, on unsustainable cost base, which they in turn pass on to the, the end investor. So Betafolio is here to change all of that. And what we've done is to build scalable technology that ensures that we continue to deliver exceptional service to, to financial planners, whilst at the same time lowering costs for the their clients and 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 you know what could be so complicated about that for us it's about making sure that the end investor keeps as much of the return of, on their investment as possible that the return on, on the investment is not being sucked out through fees uh, to to traditional dfm so we're incredibly excited about the the opportunity in this space so to all the planners who've helped us worked with us um over the last uh, over the last few months thank you thank you and yeah we look forward to to working with more of you in the future. So one of the things you implied in the book, maybe it's me reading into this, but was that, um, you know, the, the handwriting was on the wall and you, did you like imply that, you know, Woodford shouldn't, Woodford, um, you know, investment management, uh, whim, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I guess that, but you know, Woodford Investment Management shouldn't have been authorized in the first place. And you talked about this weird relationship between, um, you know, WIM and um, LINK, the, uh, the, the ACD, uh, and the regulator, where the regulator was effectively um, outsourcing its responsibility to, to LINK, the, the fund ACD. Talk a little bit about that web of... Um, incompetence, as I, 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 those are my words, not yours. Yeah, and, and, and this is certainly something that um, I was able to delve deeper into the book. We'd, we'd done a few stories about this and information we got before, but I was able to put much more information that hadn't been in the public realm in, in the book about this. Now, this was going back to the launch of, uh, of WIM, as you say, Woodford Investment Management in, um, in, in 2017. Uh, sorry, not, not 2017, in, in 20, um, uh, early 2014. So he, he had been at Invesco Petrol. He'd been managing uh, over 30 billion pounds worth of funds um collectively there you know this was a huge amount but in his latter time at Invesco Petrol uh, Invesco Petrol actually got a very large fine from the Financial Conduct Authority um for um some mismanagement of some of the funds not uh, disclosing enough about the risks that they were taking taking on too much leverage and it, it was a lot of funds across the board but it did include some of Woodford's own funds and he himself was personally uh, investigated by the regulator his role there uh, now that they found that he didn't have a personal responsibility there and he, he sort of played ignorance to some of the activity that was going on but at the same time this was going on that the Invesco Petrol were negotiating with the regulator about this this fine that they were going to have to pay and they, they held their hands up to what happened. Um, Woodford was also in the process of leaving Invesco Petrol and setting up his own 
business. And when um, he announced, or Vesco Petro announced that he was leaving, it was a huge story. This was their, this was their main guy. This was the biggest name in the fund manager industry. You know, Woodford was arguably as well known as Invesco Perpetual. Then this is a company owned by a huge US investment group. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when it was announced that he was leaving, the, the share price of Invesco, this, you know, very large US group, it, 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 it felt, you know, it, it really showed the star power that, that, uh, that Woodford had. Um, but at the same time, Woodford was kind of looking to set up his own business. Invesco Petrol in discussions with the regulator about what they were going to do with this 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 fine and this sanction. Um, so Woodford was looking to set up on his own. Uh, he had was talking to some staff he'd worked with at Invesco Perpetual. He wasn't as involved with the launch uh, as under the terms of his uh, his contract with Invesco Perpetual as he was leaving. It was up to the the people who's going to set the business up. They were in discussions with the FCA about what the structure would be. And the FCA just rushed through this application, giving them authority in record time. We're talking a matter of weeks. And, um, you know, this is a process which is fiendishly hard. You know, Re regulation has lots of back and forth, lots of questions, lots of things that they want done differently. And as I understand it, you know, having, you know, being very close to the people who were kind of involved in those discussions, the regulator, the only point the regulator came back with in, in all of this uh, when they saw, saw the business plan was that they wanted a different authorized corporate director than the, the one that had been proposed um, and uh, authorized corporate director you know I'll, I'll just sort of rehash rather than um, I'm going to too too much these are very important people or organizations within the fund management structure they effectively as you mentioned they kind of play this almost outsourced uh, governance role from the regulator they make sure that the fund is managed appropriately in in um, in the best interests of its end investors they often play that crucial role in communication between the the investment manager in this case william uh, woodford investment management and the and investors and the regulator and the uh, the custodian and they play a really important role in all of this and now the regulator said they didn't want the uh, acd that um, woodford's co-founders were, were proposing they wanted to put forward capita later link so capita obviously part of the the, the, the much wider um uh, outsourcing group and private eye is a very rude name for, for capita for, for their uh, multiple failings over the years um, capita had been involved in two very large and, and, and very um, uh, you know very bad um, fund implosions if you like running up to that and the regulated had said that they were their involvement in this the very critical of their involvement of this and basically letting these in these two incidents uh, you know large losses for their investors and for some very strange reason the regulator thought well look we've got this fund manager setting up who we're currently investigating for problems with his funds at Invesco Perpetual and we have this ACD that we've investigated for two very large blow-ups of funds um, why don't we stick them together and they're going to be much more motivated <laughs> to kind of keep the other one in check if you like and I think that was the, the reasoning behind it but Ultimately, it was it was flawed reasoning because Woodford was very forceful. He wanted things done his own way, and Capital or Link, as they subsequently became, they weren't set up to deal with someone who had complex needs and such a sort of forceful personality. They were very much a you know stamp this box, tick that box, and just move on and comply with with what the manager is asking us to do, rather than offering the challenge and offering uh, you know a, a much more kind of sophisticated service that was required for for essentially what Woodford wanted to do. So. I remember in 2014, right, when, when Woodford was living, or 2000, late 2013, maybe, uh, uh, you know, when, when he was living in Invesco, and, yeah. uh, you know, and it was announced, and I remember writing an article about this, right, you know, where I basically said, well, since the entire financial services industry um, has got their head up their bum bum, because this man was leaving um, his job to set out on its own, um, you know, let's look at Woods, Wood, Woodford's recent performance, right? And I had said in the article that actually, um, you know, Woodford's performance was declining um, in, in his later days in, in Invesco. But, but 
you know, nobody cared. I, I, this is interesting. I remember getting into an argument with uh, this gentleman, Mark Dampier at Agus Down about this. And, you know, I'm going to say this for the first time publicly. He threatened me. He said to me, you know, make, you know, write a letter of apology on all these things. I still have the emails today. Um, you know, and I declined. I said, no, I'm not going to apologize, right? Because the performance data is what the performance data is. Um, but anyway, the, the point I really want to, to you to talk about is the role of... Um, you know, this large institutional um, type investor like Hargreaves, like SJP, um, you know, Kent County Council and several others, right, within the industry about in, in propping up this man. Hmm. Talk yeah, to us absolutely. a little bit about that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, Although I mentioned he was incredibly popular with end investors, um, the reason he was so because he was promoted so heavily by, as you as you say, the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne, who are the fund intermediary, who um, you know the fund supermarket they sell funds online and they get it they get a cut, um, and you have you know as you mentioned Mark Dampier, he he is someone who promoted personally he promoted Woodford. Uh, for decades throughout his career and is somebody who was still promoting him and and uh, and talking very publicly offering his support for Woodford right up until Woodford's fund ultimately collapsed two years ago. Um, now when Woodford left Invesco Perpetual the reason he was able to get up and running so quickly not only thanks to the regulator and, and signing off the business plan it was because St James's Place had agreed to take uh, three billion pounds of of money that they would they were having Invesco he, he, he was managing for them at Invesco Petrol and switch over so he would be managing that same pool of funds at his new business so that meant that Woodford could set up a new business you know there was only a you know a dozen or a couple of dozen people at the time it wasn't a huge operation but he was already managing billions of pounds on behalf of SJP so SJP enabled him to set up on on his own, but in order for this that business to go from say two or three billion to eighteen billion, which it which it ended up managing a couple of years later, it needed to have the huge amount of public interest and marketing around that launch that persuaded hundreds of thousands of individuals to transfer their money in some cases from Invesco Perpetual to his new venture but in some other case just to say yeah I've heard of this guy he's really well known he's you know the was it the Warren Buffett of the UK I'm going to give him my money and that part was played uh, in thanks by the financial inter intermediaries and you have um Hargreaves Lansdowne at the time when when Woodford said he was setting up as, as you rightly re remember there was a huge amount of interest in, the, in this new launch and um, all the uh, platforms the fund supermarkets they wanted to have Woodford's fund available for sale. Now Hargreaves managed to negotiate a cheaper rate than everyone else they could you, they could get it for 10 basis points cheaper on the Hargreaves platform than anywhere else and then a lot of work went into negotiating this and the way that Hargreaves did this is they said listen you give us this discount and we will market the hell out of this product and they did and all you have to do is go back to look at their their documentation their, their marketing material at the time and it is all about um, you know can't you can't get you can't invest in Woodford anywhere else than here personal recommendations from Peter Hargreaves the co-owner at the time personal recommendations from Mark Dampier you know this is the biggest launch we're so excited about it we're so pleased to be supporting Neil Woodford on his new journey but you, in order to invest in him for the cheapest rate possible come to Hargreaves Lansdowne Hargreaves Lansdowne did incredibly well out of that themselves Lots of people in the market who wanted to invest in Woodford saw this marketing material and thought, well, I want to invest in Woodford. He's a fund manager I've heard about. He's had incredible success for two and a half decades, um, apart from the last few years, as, as you rightly noticed at the time. Um, 
And, uh, oh, these guys were offering the cheapest. I'll open a Hargreaves Lansdowne account. I'll put my money in there and I'll invest in Woodford there. They did incredibly well. Look, they're a FTSE 100 company. They do incredibly well. You know, they've, they, they've got, you know, one and a, one and a half, 1.8 million customers now, Hargreaves Lansdowne. They're an incredibly popular service. And a lot of that was generated in the back of near Woodford. And likewise, Woodford's new launch was generated in the back of Hargreaves Lansdowne. So they had this real symbiotic relationship where there was a lot of self-promotion or, 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 or mutual promotion. Um, and that is one of, and you know, we can come to this later, but on Woodford's downward journey, if you like, when investors were pulling money out, Hargreaves were really caught in a bind and they got a lot of criticism because they were still promoting his funds on their so-called best buy lists where they were saying, you know, we offer you know, hundreds of funds, but here are the, you know, the 30 or 40 funds that we say are the best ones. And his funds were still on that, despite two years of awful performance when everyone else was pulling away. And I think they felt that if they took him off those lists, then that would cause people to pull their money out in droves. And that would spark the fund suspension, which ultimately happened with when Kent County Council, another uh, investor you mentioned, when they did so in uh, at the end of May. And we can talk a little bit about Kent's role as well, because that's that's a fascinating one from a, from a retirement perspective. What I'm amazed by is how all these people and organizations have managed to get out um, of this whole thing almost on scale. Um, you know, so let's look at SJP, for instance. Um, you know, they had a structure where they, um, you know, it was in a different mandates, right? You know, call it a different share class. I don't know what you're going to call it. So that they were able to pull their money out, right, before all the other investors. Um, you know, SJP, sorry, you know, Agri's Lansdowne is not being penalized or, uh, as far as I'm aware, re reprimanded by the, by the, um, by the, um, Regulator, there is story of um, Dampier selling his shares um, in Hargreaves, um, you know, a few months or weeks um, to all of this coming out. Kent, you know, of course, suffered because they waited till the, you know, you know, till sort of late before they pulled their money out, and then everything else fell, um, you know, like like dominoes essentially. And and my you know so so in essence the people who really suffered um, you know from this are the end investors you know maybe the end investors um, you know even in in Kent's scenario the the, the pension fund um, and, and the end investor investors through 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 Lansdowne. How, how has this happened? You know, uh, you know, none of these people have been, uh, you know, penalized in any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate your, your frustration there. I think that's, that is one shared by a lot of people in the industry who, who look at what happened here. Um, Hargreaves and Zanzan have gone from strength to strength. There were, you know, the, for maybe two or three months, they were quite un, uh, uncomfortable. There was lots of negative headlines about them. Um, that's, Water of a duck's back is if you you just have to look at their 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 results. Um, their client base has gone up probably thirty percent uh, over the past two years. You know, so those guys aren't suffering. Um, you know, they they can they admitted some culpability in terms of their best buy lists. They've changed those lists and they hope to move on from it. Um, they're still a very profitable FTSE 100 company. SJP, as you say, you know their their structure is that they they have the fund and they just pick the manager. So for them, they can they could just get rid of Woodford one day and then they've got the the backup manager ready to take it on the the day after. Again, SJP phenomenally um, profitable business uh, who have gone from strength to strength on the on the back of this. Kent, uh, they you know as you say they asked uh, they still have funds stuck in in the equity income fund the suspended fund so they're not doing too well there was there's been internal investigations into culpability there and you know as my book provides details on and actually what went wrong it seems like it was a bit of a clueless mix up there in terms of you know people not following orders and and some people kind of maybe bending the rules a little bit and and not following the the correct protocols um and you know they were the last guy standing, if you will, when everyone else had bolted, they were the ones who was still 
in there with you know a few hundred million uh, trapped in the fund when everyone else had sort of seen the writing on the wall if you like um the one entity which is uh is maybe coming out this worse than, than the others is link we've, we've mentioned them a couple of times there are to my mind i think two or three uh, lawsuits which are pursuing them for their role in this that they're sort of these US style class action lawsuits where um, uh, law firms are collecting um, you know thousands of the investors who are trapped in the fund and looking to pursue link to recover some of those losses uh, and it's links role in not only the uh, their governance of the fund running up to the suspension, but also what's happened since in terms of some of the sell-offs of the assets and the transfers, and even um, the uh, the relationship with, with Woodford himself. And and um, having spoken to some of the lawyers, it, it's actually quite interesting because they are they think that if this does go to court, one of their star witnesses could be a certain Neil Woodford uh, on their behalf, talking about how bad bad a job Link do, which I think would would, would be quite ironic for a lot of people who who uh, point the the finger at him you know for the for these lawsuits um are uh, as i say i think two of them at least started uh, the process thinking well we're going to go after woodford and then they realized well, actually from a legal perspective that's not really something they could do because of the governance structure we're going after hargreaves lansden again what can they do there the obvious one is linked because of the responsibilities they had from you know a, a fun rules perspective and that's why uh, these court cases all these these lawsuits have, have centered on link and another thing i learned um, you know in, in your book was the the incredible lifestyle that woodford lived uh, that still continue to live um, in spite of all of this, you know, you talked about mansions in, you know, Oxfordshire and things like talk, talk a little bit about this, um, you know, and, and the pulling of dividends from mm. the company, even in those sort of dark days when, um, you know, again, it was obvious to everyone that this is, um, you know, going to end very, very badly. Yeah, I mean, that's another sort of part of the tale of why Woodford was, there was so much interest in Woodford, you know, um, throughout his career. He he lived a very um, sort of brash lifestyle, if you like. You know, he had fast cars. He loves fast cars, part of his competitive edge. He loves, you know, racing them. Uh, he owned a, a fleet. Uh, he owned a succession of uh, large houses in and around the Henley area. Um, he even had a, a, a spat once with his neighbour, um, uh, uh, Jeremy Paxman, the former Newsnight presenter, presenter, about his plans, about Woodford's plans to build a big kind of equestrian centre. Uh, and you know, there was uh, Nigel Starmer-Smith, a former England rugby player. You know, th th there was lots of local resistance to Woodford's plans. So in the end, he ended up uh, selling up and moving to the Cotswolds, which is uh, much more, you know, welcoming to the sort of the horsing community, if you like. So, um, you know, he moved over there. He, he, owned, this, he owned this huge property, uh, bought adjoining land. Uh, you know, I think it was about twice the size of the uh, the uh, Olympic Village in London, uh, the, 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 the scale of his land. You know, he had, he had sort of rare breeds of pig and sheep there, which he reintroduced. Um, but, you know, palatial house with with, with uh, you know several cars uh, outside. Um, so that's the sort of lifestyle, if you like, that uh, this industry afforded him over the years. Uh, he had a holiday home in in Salcombe in Devon, uh, overlooking the bay, and you know, had a boat there. It's all very nice. You know, at the same time, a couple of the people I spoke to in the book were invested in his fund. Um, a couple who who run a B B and B in Dalcombe, just you know, minutes down the road from from Woodford's uh, holiday home, uh, and they between them lost um, uh, seventy five thousand pounds. You know, wow. their life savings. Uh, they are having to put off retirement plans, having to carry on working into their late sixties and seventies, uh, you know, driving buses or running this B and B. Uh, th their funds for passing on to their grandchildren have you know diminished, um, and that's the reality for them and and uh, one Pauline Snelson who I spoke to she said you know, every day she sort of walks down to the the bay where Woodford's got his holiday home and just you know she can't believe it. it's a it's a really unwelcome reminder of the situation she's in and that, you know so that kind of 
that juxtaposition of uh, what's happened here. You know, where has the money gone? This is Woodford made his money by managing other people's money for a long time very well, but he's always taking his cut of it, even in the bad times. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that's certainly a flaw of, of the investment industry, these kind of ad valorem fees where, you know, you will always get, you know, 0.5% or 1% or whatever of the fund value if you go up, if you have a great year, if you go down, a bad year. And um, if we continue to take those fees well into the, the, the bad period when uh, these investors were losing. And, you know, I'm guessing you, you're, you're not going to be getting any invite into this uh, sort of mansions and, uh, you know, <laughs> horse riding spots anytime soon. <laughs> uh, but, but these things are still going on. So he's still able to maintain this lifestyle by and large, even post, um, you know, post um, the scandal. Well, um, now... I mean, he he would have made enough money in his uh, career up to this point to you know enjoy a very comfortable life for the rest of his life and presumably his kids and maybe even grandkids. You know, he, he made him and his business partner who ran Woodford Investment Management over five years um, from from start to uh, to you know embarrassing collapse. Uh, between them. Uh, took in close to ninety million pounds in dividends with, with taking the. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. With Woodford taking two two thirds of that himself, so this is you know his business partner Craig Newman. Uh, he, he similarly owns you know very expensive cars, houses, you know property property empire. So that is the the sorts of rewards on offer for uh, people. They ran their business, um, which you know probably at most employed thirty or forty people. Um, uh, soon after launching, they kind of made this big announcement: "We're not doing bonuses. We're not. We're, we're scrapping bonuses. Everyone's going to be paid on a on a good level, and and we're not going to be having this kind of boom boom bust uh, type of approach to business." Well, that's fine, but it, it did mean that there was more in the pot left over for these dividends that just the two of them, the two partners, would take home themselves. So, whilst most of the people on the shop floor were earning you know, good salaries, certainly good for um, in terms of the the average salary in, in the UK. Um, you know, they weren't uh, earning anything like the, the the money that Woodford and, and uh, Newman were taking out. So a lot of the people who worked at Woodford Investment Management, you know, very good professionals in their own right, um, the, the business folds and they need to continue it working because they, like everyone else, you know, probably need to work until they're sort of in their 60s and uh, older to uh, to have a decent retirement. They've had to go and get jobs. They all had their pensions in the Woodford Fund. That was kind of the company policy. You know, that was the sort of standard uh, pension often. Um, so they've lost money. They're among the victims in, in all of this. And, you know, they're trying to get jobs where they've got Woodford on their CV. So it's, it's hard of them to do that. So, but you know, Woodford and, and Newman, you know, took out tens of millions of pounds in dividends and, and uh, have done very well. You know, there was a story uh, about six months ago, just before, completely coincidence, I'm sure, just before my book came out, Woodford did a uh, an interview with the Sunday Telegraph talking about his big comeback, which we're still waiting to see, um, where he said that he'd had to sell his, his large... Uh, uh, you know, his home in, in the Cotswolds, he had to downgrade because of his, his financial position. Um, that, that may or may not be the case. I'm, I'm sure he's not living in penury at the minute. And um, so, so this is my um, question to you, right? Do you think that your profession, journalism, bears any responsibility in hyping up um, Woodford. Absolutely, ab absolutely, and um, yeah, the the, the I, I, t I talked earlier about the the hype surrounding Woodford's launch of his new business in 2014, which was in part driven by uh, you know the marketing teams at uh, the big uh, financial intermediaries. Another huge part of that was the the financial press, and you can see that throughout Woodford's career and. Um, you know, certainly in the, he really sort of emerged, if you like, in the, in the public sphere in the sort of the late 90s. Um, there was this whole time, uh, again, it, it might be a little bit before your time in industry and certainly before mine, uh, the PEP wars, you know, there was uh, PEPs, the sort of 
pre pre ices um there was uh you know these savings products and you'd you'd have in the fund industry certain funds were geared towards accepting these the the the, the, uh, the money from these these products and um Invesco Perpetual was uh, one of the biggest names in this and, and they were really promoting their fund managers, Woodford being one of the main ones, to have their funds to, to collect the, you know, the, the sort of the residual bits of, of tax uh, efficient money at the end of the savings year, the, the tax calendar. And so you'd get uh, lots of newspaper uh, articles, uh, you know, towards the end of the tax year saying, you know where to put the rest of your tax allocation which mm-hmm. your pep uh, your your pep savings where should you put it and woodford's name w- was really rising to the top and he would always be mentioned in these articles and that's really where he he, he started to become well known he then had a uh, ultimately a very good um, dot com crash in the run up to that his fund he he had he had bought to invest in in dot-com companies he thought they were completely overvalued for what they were and um as a result while everyone else was was wading into all the all the dot-com businesses he stayed out of that and his fund as a result suffered because he, he wasn't you know achieving the the uh the kind of returns that some of these peers were when it all came crashing down woodford was the guy who hadn't invested but in the run-up to that it got very very uncomfortable for him and you know there was there was talk that he could be fired he could lose his job his his company at the time uh, perpetual was in the process of being sold to invesco and that deal could have fallen collapsed just because of the poor performance of his fund and he was getting pressure to to invest in these companies so he came out of that smelling of roses people were like this guy foresaw the dot-com bubble bursting he is a soothsayer he is someone we should hold in high regard and he kind of repeated the similar trick in the run-up to the um, financial crisis you know he'd pull back from investing in banks in the run-up to that so this was really creating this this story of woodford this this incredible investor who could see trouble you know at 10 paces he, he could really you know manage his portfolio accordingly um and the press really liked to cover this guy because not only was he you know for a lot of his time was producing very strong returns uh he was also easy to talk to he's very he's very he's, you know down uh, down to earth the way he'd talk about his portfolio very easy to uh understand he didn't sort of drift into um into uh you know industry jargon he would he would quite happily just talk about what was going on in his portfolio what, how he saw the economy shaping up um and he could it, 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 but also had this kind of lifestyle to match and people like, really enjoyed thinking about you know his huge watch that he had in his hand and his, mm. these fast cars that he drove at weekends and all this sort of stuff so he that became a bit of the story around him as well and there was so much fascination in him on his way up and then also on his way down as well and i think you can see that and you know i think there's certainly people very close to woodford who um would say that the, the media were partly responsible for his downfall as well because a lot of the when he was every story that there was saying his fund has performed very badly uh, the following day there would be uh, a, a withdrawal of funds from that fund which would make his situation even more acute and also every time that one of his companies that he invested in again maybe had some poor returns that might get outsized press coverage because of its association with woodford and therefore that would lead to more money falling out the fund and and, and again the the sort of the uh, underperformance and and the liquidity problems that he had so um i i can i can understand that argument and i can i can um i can certainly say that the, the press bears some responsibility for not only promoting woodford on the way up but also on on his uh, his uh, way down as well so ultimately this is still very much an ongoing um issue right and there are people whose monies are still, uh, you know, trapped in, in Woodford's funds. Um, can you, is, the, is there a quantification of the losses that people are taking, you know, that, that people have um, um, taken as a result of this? And is there any lessons for just, you know, for, for Mr. and Mrs. Miggins? who are saving and investing towards their retirement, is there any lessons that they can take away from all of this? 
Yeah, I, I, at, at the moment, it's a bit tricky to put a definite number on the losses because the, the process we're in at the minute uh, is because of a lot of the very hard to sell assets are still uh, haven't been sold. And so Link is kind of overseeing that process. And so until they work out what value they get for them uh, and they pay that money back to the uh into the to the investors that's when you can't start seeing the crystallization of, of those losses though i think it's reasonable to say about a billion pounds will be lost as a result of this um so you know that's a lot of money uh and uh even more so i think for the sorts of people who are investing in here i talked earlier about Pauline nelson and her partner fred hiscock life-changing you know this is the the, the amount of money seventy-five thousand pounds for that for them you know, for Woodford, that's that's a new car. Maybe for for them, that is them, you know, putting off their retirement. That is them continuing to work when you know, giving up all these life plans they had when they're at an age when they should really be thinking or hoping to expect a much more quieter, sedate life. So, it that's that's kind of the real story here. The these these people who who have lost out significantly, um, and I suppose the lessons learned from this. Uh, episode you know if, if you talk to, to Pauline or well, you know, spoken to Pauline and, and Fred they have lessons themselves they I think they, they feel they were too trust trusting in people who um, were, were putting their money in they, they they made classic investor decisions uh, mistakes in terms of they put all their you know money in the same fund yeah that is quite clearly a, a bad strategy you know you should be sort of looking to you know diversification that's kind of rule number one in investing so they they hold their hands up to that um, but at the same time, for a lot of people, for, for millions of people, the way that the retirement industry has changed over the past 15, 20 years, where there's much more personal account, personal responsibility in terms of, you know, money purchase, uh, pensions, in terms of, you know, choosing funds, in terms of choosing retirement accumulation products, this has all been placed that burden of responsibility onto individuals away from, you know, uh, paternalistic employers and, you know, final salary pension schemes. And therefore we have this situation where millions, tens of millions of people in the UK are having to make these huge decisions about their personal wealth. And at the same time, we've seen changes in the, in the retirement market, which understandably have said, well, we don't want to be offering so-called free advice where, you know, there's clearly a, an inducement to offer certain certain products. It needs to be, uh, you know, unbiased uh, advice and, you know, but that comes at a cost. And so we do have this situation where we have millions of people who need, desperately need retirement savings advice, investment advice, but there isn't the industry that's set up around them to offer that that them that uh, advice at costs where which are affordable to them, so that is a that's a big flaw, and I, I'm sure you know there are lots of technology things that are coming down the track, and there's you know people are spending a lot of time thinking about this issue, but that's certainly one of the bigger issues that uh, needs addressing. So is is my solution then? Uh, you know what what everyone should be thinking about, which is. Um, when it comes to investing your retirement money, you should be investing in low cost, globally diversified um, you know, index funds that has you know, literally thousands of thousands of companies um, within the fund and that isn't managed by you know, um, any, any individual in a sense of you know, picking and choosing um, you know, what companies to invest. Is that just really the way to go now or am I living in La La Land? No, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, the innovation of, of passive funds over the past, well, I mean, I suppose it's been going for a, a, a while, but certainly in the past sort of 10, 20 years, it, it's certainly a, a, an industry, it, the, the, the sorts of funds that most people should be investing most of their money in. You know, I, I, like to think i know a little bit more about the industry than the typical person so therefore i think my own pension savings are maybe 70 80 percent in index and i i like to sort of play around with the other bits and sort of think maybe some managers i quite like or certainly their strategies um or the sort of companies they invest in but that's 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 almost your you know here's 70 percent of my portfolio is in 
I'm just going to give it to indexed funds, as you say, very well diversified in terms of sectors and sort of globally, uh, and just try and make sure that they, they retain that value and they don't lose me too much in fees. And there's a little bit on the side I play around with because I sort of think, well, you know, there are maybe some funds that I have a view on which could do quite well, but I'm certainly not going to be putting you know, all of my eggs in, into those one, that one basket. Interesting, interesting, which was the other question I was going to answer, ask you, but you, um, you know, you've, you've answered that, so we'll move on. So, sort of wrapping this up then, I was listening to your book, because I, I, I listened to the book on, on, um, on um, Audible, right? And my daughter was in the car for, you know, a meaningful part of a, a journey listening to this, and she's, she's only 10. And she asked me the question, Dad, why is the cult built on a lie? You know, I get your um, response because McCartney said so. But my question is, was it really built on a lie? You know, did, was there meaningful substance to what Woodford was doing? Because in the end, even, you know, going by your book, he was wanting to create a legacy, right? By investing in, uh, you know, by investing in Br British um, scientific or biotech companies. And that was meant to be his legacy. But of course, a lot of people, a lot of people lost money, um, a lot of money in, in the process. So my question to you is, based on your own assessment, should Woodford have been allowed to even start a, you know, the, the whim um, on, on his own? Was everything built on a lie? Well, I mean, again, this, this is something I, I go into in the book, and it hasn't really been um, received much coverage before. One of the main reasons that Woodford wanted to leave Invesco Petrol um, and, and it's been talked about, he, you know, he wanted to have more say in what he was doing, which is absolutely true. And he'd fallen out with, with managers in, in America who, were, who wanted to move some of the business, the focus away from just him onto other people. But he had for a long time up to this point, had an interest in these kind of British scientists, science based companies. Um, uh, and he wanted to set up a fund at Invesco Petrol which would be very similar to the investment trust he later launched, um, which would be very much targeted at unquoted or certainly uh, thinly quoted companies specializing in bioscience or, and, and, and some of the associated, you know, this whole kind of, uh, Britain's got some of the best universities in the, in the world and this idea that you can create products on the base, on the back of university research, it's it's a great idea in principle, and you know, the, the, in the longer term, yeah, it's it's fantastic, um, and that's what Woodford wanted to do. Well, at the same time, that sort of fund is never going to make you anywhere near as much money as the big blockbuster funds that he'd managed previously in Vesco Petrol. So they didn't really want to do that. They didn't, they didn't think that he needed to be spending more time doing that, that sort of fund rather than, than, than his, uh, his main funds. And so he fell out of them for all sorts of reasons. But one of the reasons for, for setting up on his own was because he wanted to be that sort of manager. Um, and as he's mentioned in, in the Sunday Te Telegraph article earlier this year, if he's if he wants to start again it is going to be in these sort of very specialized companies for professional investors not for retail investors right. um the problem was when he set his business up he had exactly the same problem at investigo petrol he needed to have firstly the sjp money to help set the business up and they wanted something very similar to what he'd done at investigo petrol and in order to get the all the to keep the business going he would need to bring in hundreds of thousands of investors who were looking for something very similar to what he'd done at Investigative Petrol. So the idea was you set this company up, you, you, you kind of recreate kind of what you're doing at Investigative Petrol, you set that up and then Woodford can then, you know, focus a lot more of his time on this patient capital trust as it, as it uh, became known. Um, uh, the, you know, this investment trust. Well, that was the idea, but 
ultimately when things were going problematic were going badly in the main fund and he had already actually invested a lot of that main fund in some of these small and tech companies that's when things started to go wrong uh you know had he just said i'm going to quit doing all that altogether and just set up this kind of small investment trust things could have been quite different but then at the same time i think it would have been a much lower key um uh, uh launch for his new business he wouldn't have made half you know anywhere near the amount of personal gains he made from the dividends from the business because th there isn't the the audience there isn't the investor base who wants to invest in these funds and who, who should be ideally he was still going after the same wide investor base of people who are looking to invest in you know large british companies at the same time wanting to run his own kind of side project and ultimately the by by merging those two businesses together it, it this is where the problems arose yeah so i guess in that regard we can say that he was built on a lie of um you know wanting to invest in illiquid and you know startup companies but selling this as um, you know, investing in blue chip companies, which you know, I guess it did. But anyway, but no, I just want to say, um, Owen, thank you very much for your time um, on the podcast. Thank you for the insight, for the book. Um, I highly, highly recommend the book, um, you know, to, to, to any investor and indeed to financial advisors um, who really want to get into um, you know, the nitty gritty of what, what really went wrong and the lessons that we can take from there. So on that basis, Owen Walker, author of Built on a Lie, thank you very much for, for your time and for coming on Retirementals Podcast. Thank you very much, Abraham. Re really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.